Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Now, you know, we've been able to prevent working with our board, the CEO, families, researchers, scientists, other public health professionals to bring the rate of cerebral palsy down by more than 30%. Trying to build an entrepreneurial research foundation from startup stage within an existing charity was always an ambitious goal. Cerebral Palsy Alliance Chief Executive Rob White and the Macquarie Group Chair of Cerebral Palsy and Neonatal Intensive Care Specialist Professor Nadia Badawi set about marshalling their forces to take this idea to improve outcomes for those living with CP via major investment in world's best research and turn that into a sustainable reality some 15 years ago. Together with the considerable help of brilliant and dedicated researchers like Professor Iona Novak and Sarah McIntyre, who were there from the very beginning, and tireless campaigner Morel Thornton, who was the previous chair of the board, they achieved their dream. Today, in part two of our conversation, Rob and Nadia explain how they did it. So I'm speaking with Professor Nadia Badawi, Medical Director of the Grace Centre for Intensive Care at the Children's Hospital Westmead and the Chair of Cerebral Palsy at the University of Sydney, and Rob White, who's the CEO of the Cerebral Palsy Alliance. Rob, how did the idea, the vision come up? for the Research Foundation. We talked a little bit yeah. about that. But, no, look, but- I think it was clear that we needed to have a bit of a circuit breaker in a way because, you know, kids were being born with cerebral palsy, as I said, every day. We really needed to look at, well, how could we promote research into prevention and cure? And when we looked around the world, we always, I used to say when sort of donors would say to me, what are you doing about research? I'd say, oh, we can't afford to do that. That's happening overseas. When we went and looked overseas, you know, we saw pockets of excellence there. But it wasn't But it was really always happening. around a person who had a certain interest in a certain part of cerebral palsy or whatever. So again, our organisation took on that challenge and said, we got a large bequest from a wonderful person called Elsie Thompson who died. She was the wife of the person who founded Holler a Marshall, the battery company, and she gave money to our organisation, which allowed us to kickstart the foundation. And so we quarantined that and said, let's put that towards promoting research into prevention So that prevention was like a sort cure. of a future fund. A that future would be fund, a, a capital like. fund. And it was great because it meant that any money we then made or any person we go to as a donor, we can pass 100% of that through. But I think the unique thing about us as well is that we didn't want to just build a research institute. We actually wanted to fund the best people across the globe into prevention, the research into prevention, the cures of cerebral palsy and also the best treatments. And I think that's been a great strength that we've been able to drive that. And I suppose the other thing is really around wanting to have a bit of a roadmap around our strategy for the world research community. Let me get this straight. No other country in the world was doing serious, systematic, well-organised research into cerebral palsy. There were pockets around the world, but they were more more around a person. And when we went to the NHMRC here in Australia and worked out how much they were funding cerebral palsy back in 2006, it was a million they were giving. One million dollars. And this is a a condition, as you know, that that costs Australia billions, in fact, 5.6 
billion per year. So, and, you know, the NIH in the States weren't, you know, they gave small amounts as well. And, and I mean, it's it's all based on applications. And, and part of it is that if you're a young researcher, cerebral palsy is probably not an area they wanted to go into because there's no money there. So it's a bit circular. So ours, again, was a bit of a circuit breaker to say, how can we bring money to research and actually get good, smart people in there? But why did you want to do that? If you think, well, no one else is doing it, so maybe that's the wrong thing to do. Did you actually believe with the medical people that you could better prevent it, better treat it, and maybe cure it? I think we had to have that vision. We did have that vision of sort of saying, well, we see it every day. So the fact that we work in a centre that sees people coming in every single day, really there was there, there was no one really carrying out that research. Even to, to the treatments of cerebral palsy, there wasn't a to huge amount of treatment what, to see what didn't yeah. work. So again, even the evidence around that, we've come a long way there. So there was no sort of research there. So we strongly believed, and in fact, we used a rather controversial word called cure because, you know, that can be quite controversial. But I mean, again, you need that you need the light on the hill to say that's what we may be able to go towards. Now, that could be 20, 30 years off, but that's what we were ultimately, and if we can prevent cerebral palsy, that's clearly what we're aiming to do. Nadia, how difficult a task was it to scale up? From your point of view, you're looking after the medical side, you're trying to get the money that is raised by the Research Foundation to the best research projects in the world. How difficult was that all to scale up? No, I think, again, I thought that we could achieve this. I had no doubt we would achieve it. That's the strange thing. When you ask now, did you think, how could you scale up? I suppose I never doubted that we would, which is strange looking back. Just knew that we were going to do great things. I was surrounded by great people. And one of the great things about Cerebral Palsy Alliance is that while, yes, it operates very efficiently, is that it is run by families, for families, for people with cerebral palsy. I've never worked in an organization like that. And that keeps you focused on what matters. And I think the we were given a lot of latitude at the beginning sort of, yes, there weren't huge goals. And then gradually we grow so that now, you know, we've been able to prevent, again, not just us, but it's all about collaboration, working with our board, the CEO, families, researchers, scientists, other public health professionals to bring the rate of cerebral palsy down by more than 30%. And also- Just say that again mm -hmm. and explain what you mean. Because that's an extraordinary, it is an extraordinary piece of success. It is an extraordinary result. And I'm actually glad that we didn't imagine we'd get there because I think we'd have sat down and fainted. But it, it isn't a huge result. And I think it just it's getting the right people working together. When people so, are sorry, funny, when you say that, you are saying in this country that you and other doctors who work in this area, medical profession in cerebral palsy, has been able to reduce the incidence of cerebral palsy by 30%. Yes, but that's also working with the pub. It's telling people. It is saying that you believe something can be done. People want to have a vision. They need someone to say something can be done, and then they'll follow it. And with enough conviction and also right motivation, people can see who come to us, even though they may not like everything we do, 
I can honestly say that we are focused on the right outcome. Not perfect, but we genuinely want to help people with cerebral palsy and families. And I think that belief and that, I know the word authenticity is overused, but it is something I do see in on our organization, the belief that we could prevent cerebral palsy. I could see it happening in front of me in intensive care. I remember when I started in newborn intensive care and we were resuscitating very premature babies. They were so small. People hadn't even started. They were surviving and a very large proportion had brain damage. And I remember as a young resident being so proud of this work and my father coming to visit. And I took him on a tour of the intensive care. He got so upset and he said, do you actually think of the impact of what you and your colleagues are doing? Yes, you're keeping all these babies alive, but how many are going to have a normal quality of life? What are you doing to their mothers? And I was very upset that, how dare he, you know, challenge this. But it is good to have people outside to say, well, no, mm. you can't. Just, so we started thinking about prevention. And that's why I wanted, I went from Ireland, I'd also trained in Egypt, to work with Fiona Stanley. And, you know, Eve Blair, who worked with her, who's a foremost researcher, started talking about the causes of cerebral palsy, not being birth-related only. And that really turned a bulb on in my head. I was thinking, well, if the causes are different to what we thought, we haven't been able to prevent it to date. In fact, some of our work is actually increasing it. Well, maybe we can reverse that and we can prevent cerebral palsy. So ironically, being a newborn intensive care specialist, as odd a decision as it was to appoint me as a chair, has actually turned out to be ironically or rather the right decision because most of the preventative strategies are happening in the newborn intensive care units and around pregnancy. Like what? Give us a, a little portrait. So because of about half of all people with cerebral palsy were born too soon, they're premature, and we've got very good at keeping preterm babies alive in Australia. Survival extraordinary. If you're a 28 27, 26 weaker out of 40 weeks of pregnancy, you've almost got a 90% chance of survival. But as your father said, what's the quality of life? Yes. And that's what we really needed to improve. And newborn intensive care specialists have been very interested in data for a long time. So we're unusual in that we collect data on all the babies in newborn intensive care and we follow them up so we could see the outcome of our work. Right. So how have you been able to improve that? And it's by working with it. the Cerebral Palsy Alliance to start instituting some therapies during the pregnancy. So magnesium sulfate, it's a drug, it's very cheap, can be given to a mother who knows she's going into preterm labor. And it again prevents cerebral palsy among preterm babies by 30%. Again, so the this data. Is bath salts, but given as a intravenously, proper drug, intravenously. Yes, proper monitoring, yeah, incredible. And again, this comes from the registries, the data, good research. What do you think the Research Foundation has achieved? It's brought people 
all around the world together. It's been a clarion call to researchers, doctors, families. We can do something. Is it realistic to say you can find a cure to CP? I think so. I think the challenge with using the word cure is that because cerebral palsy starts so early, that some people who have cerebral palsy identify the condition as integral to their personhood. And how do we say that we want to cure cerebral palsy by also saying we value the person with cerebral palsy? It's a complex message. So we, and most people with cerebral palsy want us to look for a cure, over 85%. So we are working towards it. We don't want to offer false hope because that's the worst thing we can do. It's a complex message, but I know that people with cerebral palsy and their families are sophisticated. So some of the projects that the Research Foundation has funded, some of the research projects around the world, have they resulted in good concrete treatments that are used in hospital intensive care wards? All the time. And the good thing about it, which is that there are lots of single causes. So I'll give you an example about magnesium sulfate. Everybody knew that it worked. And uh, Professor Caroline Crowther, who has been working in Adelaide, she had shown the data. She's a professor of obstetrics. We knew it worked. This is when? Oh, we're about 10 years ago. Okay, not 50 years ago. No, but the problem is then that there is about a 20-year lag between research showing a result and then it becoming treatment that's used at the bedside. Yeah. And, you know, the horrific thing is that there's a lot of research that's never, ever used because it's not transmitted in the proper way to the public nor to the authorities who will fund it and implement it. There's quite a disconnect between the world of research and the world of medicine, every day-to-day medicine. And I remember when we were discussing magnesium sulfate with the board and with Rob and my colleagues, and they said to me, well, we're not waiting 20 years, Nadia, you've got to get that message out. We're going to go to the media. You have to go on TV, newspapers. I was thinking, no, I'm not because you're not trained to do that when you do medicine. And they said to me, well, you can wait 20 years, we're not. And you know, medicine is full of hundreds of thousands of people who've been damaged because research was not implemented. SIDS is a common thing. People count, there's horrific studies showing hundreds of thousands of babies who died worldwide because the safe sleeping message didn't get out early enough. Or the fact that we knew that giving steroids to a mother going into preterm birth would protect the brain and the lungs. Again, horrific numbers. I mean, I can't even bear to do the maths. So I think there's a secret with the alliance is that it was bringing the science, the research into the real world and saying, we're going to do this. We know how to do these. We are media people. We're lawyers. Okay, so not just the incidence of cerebral palsy has been reduced in this country, but the severity. Can you just give us an example of how and why? To to me, that's that's as important a result because when we got the drop in the rate 
I actually wondered if we'd get a rise in severity because the newborn intensive care units around Australia are doing amazing work. To have a death now in a newborn intensive care unit is rare. And I thought that with the increasing survival, we might start having more severe disability. But of course, I should have looked at history and seen that when you bring down the incidence of a condition, you actually bring down the severity. They follow each other. And we start uh, to come to a, an unmedical mind natural, like mine. I yeah, can't it's get part my head of the around natural that. history of things that by preventing some conditions, you're also preventing, you're moving everything backwards. Yeah. And earlier diagnosis obviously Early helps. Early diagnosis is another story. So the drop in severity has not been yet due to the early diagnosis. That's a totally different story. Right. But the fruits of that, which I'll talk about later, will come. We started seeing that less people with cerebral palsy were having to use wheelchairs. Less had intellectual disability. And that is a wonderful thing because we would see in our follow-up clinics children coming in in wheelchairs who were deaf, blind, with, it was really heartbreaking. And I remember going to, because we meet in the newborn intensive care units twice a year, and we all compare our results, there's a lot of competition. And people started saying, oh, you're noticing, I'm not seeing children coming in in wheelchairs anymore. And that has helped make the work of the Cerebral Palsy Alliance very important to the newborn intensive care doctors and the obstetricians because they are starting to see results. And CP Alliance has become a trusted source of information. So to, to bring that incidence down, was most of it stopping prematurity, no, trying to get also, babies to go full term? It's a very funny thing, Helen, about doctors and health professionals and problems that sometimes you just say you think you can solve it and everything starts getting better. Because people have hope, you find that the obstetricians are doing a better job, the midwives are doing a better job. The whole system starts trying to do their little bit better. I think it's, and the CPLites was out there in front saying, we can do better. Rob, I want to ask you, how does the funding model work for the Research Foundation? So I know because I'm a governor on the foundation, but I want you to tell our listeners. So we run a grants program every year. So we, we basically fundraise for, for the organization. We also have a, a corpus that, that sits there as well. So those funds that we raise, I said before, we are able to pass through 100% of those funds, those Two. larger grants. So we, we basically then have a grants round where people apply across the globe for money and researchers. Then researchers across the globe can apply for funding with us. We then have a, they're peer reviewed. So they're peer reviewed by two people across the globe. Then we have a short list and we put them into the researching into the priority areas. You've transformed that. You've really sort of reformed the organization. You've been visionary and had this startup within CPA, which is the research foundation. But like most startups, you possibly came close to failure at some point. Was there ever a point where you thought, oh, not sure this is going to work, it's going to fall apart, or the funding was close to 
stopping? Oh, look, I mean, funding's always funding's always hard. You're sort of on that. You're like the rat on the at the start of the financial year. You start again. We're starting on the wheel. But in saying that, you know, having great people, we have a great group of board members, governors donors, sponsors who support us. So no, we've never really, we've never really got to that point. In fact, it's it's been onwards and upwards. Wow. And, you know, basically we've started a, a friends of organization in New York where we're trying to there influence the NIH, influence researchers there to actually try and make this truly global, which it is. And we run summits around the world to try and get the best researchers in the room to map an area of, of interest for cerebral palsy, whether it's be early diagnosis whether it's genes, whether it's stem cells. So again, to drive that strategy and try and excite people to the cause. It's quite extraordinary. So not only are you taking it to the rest of the world, but you're also, your research programs are moving to places like our, some of our developing neighbours, Vietnam, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, we've got a lot to share and there's a lot, as Nadia could say more on, but there's a lot of prevention we could do in those countries are things we already know, we already implement, and they really need to implement that. So I think that's the big challenge for us now. That's one of our next big steps is how do we influence the rest of the world? And we're making great gains there as well to get those as part of their common day practice. Yeah. And to get their numbers down. Absolutely. Nadia, what are the perhaps two or three best things that has happened to cerebral palsy, either in incidence or severity? You mentioned magnesium sulfate really being such a simple but very I'd effective. I'd like to bring it back to the register. I think the Australian Cerebral Palsy Register has been, it underpins everything we do. Because if you can't show the numbers and you can't show what works and doesn't, it doesn't work. So the register is our number one asset. Magnesium sulfate, cooling babies who've had a lack of oxygen during the delivery, picking up that an infection like cytomegalovirus is a big cause of cerebral palsy. The cooling genomics. babies. Yes, just term a babies. little bit more. The about small that. group who do suffer a lack of oxygen during the birth process, and they are a small group can be helped by bringing their temperature down about three degrees for the first three days of life. And that will help some of them and absolutely stop them developing cerebral palsy. And that might what stop them fitting, stop them having a yes, brain injury. because what we realized was that, yes, there's a lack of oxygen. It lasts for a short time, but the real injury is a cascade of events that follows for the next three days. And I say it's like putting the brain into hibernation, allowing it to stop literally killing itself over those following days. And that's what cooling it down yes. does for those three days. Sorry, genomic? And genomics, that's been a huge thing. Again, we were, the CP Alliance, proud to fund the first study in the world that was conducted in Adelaide with Professor Alistair McLennan, showing that about 15 to 30% of cerebral palsy is related to abnormalities in genetics. Nobody thought that. They thought it was 1%. And now we're showing that it's a very big proportion, at least 30%. Extraordinary. Rob, just to sort of round out talking about entrepreneurialism and, and what you've done in this not-for-profit space, what do you think is the most important thing in building an organisation like the Research Foundation? Oh, look, again, Helen, I'll just go back to, you know, having great people around you, having that very strong vision there 
um, having the backing of people and having the money to do it, but you've got to make that money in order to do it. So part of our success around the sort of global and international strategy is that we're being able to influence that international strategy by handing those grants out. So you can kind of control the strings there a little bit because you are actually helping drive that strategy by who you're going to fund and who you're going to back into the future. Do you think you've built resilience into the organisation, both financial resilience, but also sustainable ongoing ability to fund research Absolutely. over the next 20, Absolutely. 30, 40 yeah. years? Yeah, yeah. We're not going to stop until we totally prevent cerebral palsy. That's our vision. But no, it is a very resilient organisation, very well run with you know, good income streams there. And the NDIS has really helped around ensuring that people get the money that they need in order to buy services, either from us or from other providers. Nadi, what do you think has been the most important thing in this research foundation for you as the medical chair to deal with, to get right, to allow it to become this kind of major force? It is alliances. The name is fantastic. It's perfect. It is building connections with people who want to make a difference and have abilities that we don't have is making the vision clear why why it is important to prevent cerebral palsy. The part that I am extremely proud of is the fact that we're now helping build registers for cerebral palsy in lower and middle income countries. If it's hard having cerebral palsy in a rich country like Australia, it is disastrous in a poor country. And we can learn from other countries. They're learning from us. And that's why I think when you say, have we built resilience into the organization? I think we're more than just CP Alliance now. We are a global organization. And I'm not worried because many of the people that we work with now, even if we stopped, they're going to pick it up and move on. It is bigger than us. It's bigger than the organization. So, yep. It's going to succeed. Can I just, I want to throw in just a few sort of personal questions for you both. Just, they don't have to be long answers. Nadia, what are you obsessed about at the moment? I'm asking all my guests this, be it a film, a book, a cause. Actually, the cause is, and I know, is, is I do worry that with COVID, People with disabilities around the world are in a terrible way. That is my actual thing that's really bothering me. And I think about it all the time. We have a register in Bangladesh and, I, you know, the board, CPLites are trying to help. That's really what keeps me preoccupied. So you think if, if we're struggling and people with disabilities in this sort of rich community might be struggling with isolation, with getting services delivered, what must the people in Bangladesh, yes. Vietnam? And we've had, again, due to the great connections, we've had donors actually send food to some pay for food and equipment for some of the mothers of babies in Bangladesh because things got very bad there for a while. Rob, what are you obsessed about at the moment? 
Um, I'm trying to finish reading Shuggy Bane at the moment, <laughs> Helen, so that's my obsession. <laughs> Good. So a bit of fiction. <laughs> I think so. Look, I, I think it, I, as well it's, I, I mean, COVID's really slowed down research in some countries. You know, we've got a big footprint in the States now and, again, you know, they're really suffering. We've got our office in New York where people can't even go into the office and whatever. So, again, it's working with them to make sure that we don't lose the next 12 months. That's really important. Nadia, I want to ask you, in your entrepreneurial journey, even though you don't necessarily think of yourself as an entrepreneur, what do you think has been the biggest thing you've learned in that startup journey, Save the Research Foundation? What I've learned is that if, I, if you want to achieve something and you're determined enough, you will, because you wanting to achieve something is more than the desire of other people to stop you. There's always going to be naysayers as part of the human condition. And they're quite helpful because they can also temper your enthusiasm. I'm told Or they can stir you on. Well, no, I'm told by Rob that as soon as I see a bright, shiny ball, I'm down the corridor after it. (laughs) And that's right. I do like innovation. I do want to learn ways of doing things. And I think that one person can make a difference if they work with others who have ability and knowledge. The other thing that I've learned is that almost everybody I meet wants to do good. It gives their own lives meaning. And if you can show that here's a possibility, work with us, be inspired by us, look at these children and their families, then people never say no. And I always think in the rare time that somebody actually said no to me, I thought they're not saying no to me, they're saying no to babies and people with cerebral palsy. So I don't I care can't if they say no. anyone's ever said no to you, No, there Nadia. is one person <laughs> and they know who they are. <laughs> Rob, what's the biggest thing you've learned in this startup journey? Well, look, I think having a really clear, crisp focus is really important. I think also, you know, you're starting off small. I mean, we start off small. I remember starting with, you know, two of our researchers, Iona and Sarah, and they weren't researchers then, they're OTs, and talking about let's establishing a research institute. And they were so worried that we'd be laughed off the stage. And our research institute now has an international reputation. So I think start with those small gains. But I think it's really important to promote your successes. People like to be supporting successful stories. And I think we've been able to show that and be able to show your successes, show your impact. So I just think it's that step by step, that clear focus really helps. Rob White, Professor Nadia Badawi, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.